Heavenly Father, once again, we, we, we have come together into this place in fellowship and prayer and worship and come to your table, um, and we stand here in your presence. And we do this because of who Jesus is and what he alone was able to do. Lord, in offering to us salvation in his, um, in his death, burial, and resurrection, by placing our faith in him and then drawing us together into your church, um, this community of faith, this um, connection, this family. Lord, as now we turn our eyes, our hearts, our minds to these written words, may we see in them the living word, your son Jesus. And in seeking after him, Lord, we ask that your spirit gives us insight, gives us, uh, illuminates the scriptures for us so they become more than just a subject to study, but a path and a, and a way for us to live to bring glory to your name. And we pray this, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I want to invite you this morning to turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We are uh, journeying through the book of 1 Corinthians because um, this is the worst case scenario. Um, The Corinthian church, I'm not sure they could have done more things incorrectly. Um, They certainly seem to be very, very good at making bad decisions. How many of you have ever known somebody who was just very good at making bad decisions? And you have to applaud their persistence. You know, their ability to just do the wrong thing. Um, it's like, it's, and at one point, you know, you kind of have to say to them, you go, all right, look, whatever you think is the right decision, do the other thing. All right? Um, and so, and hopefully we grow and we, we learn and, and we, uh, we, uh, we find our feet, um, especially in Christ. But we have been going through, and last week we talked about, uh, we talked about how um, we talked about the Lord's table, and the week before that we talked about how, uh, how prayer had become a show. Right? And in both of those areas, what was happening in the church was that there was this, there was this worship of, of, uh, of the appearance, you know, the, the presentation, the, the um, here we are, we're here at church. And, and, and I have to think that in, Jesus, in, in Paul's mind is resonating Jesus' statements about um, how uh, some of the Pharisees and the scribes, they would come to the temple and when they were going to offer their alms, when they were going to give um, their, their money to the temple, they made sure that there were horns blaring and, and they dressed in their finest garments and they said, look, look, I'm about to do this amazing spiritual thing. Uh, and, and he sees this church that the Apostle Paul had, had started and he had been there for a long time, for over a year, ministering to them. And, and you know, it's funny, I, I, when you're reading this, and um, I was reading a, a, a commentary and they're talking about, well, Paul had devoted so much time to the Corinthians, how could they possibly make these mistakes? And I'm sitting there and going, Paul was there for like a year and a half. I've been the pastor for almost 19 years, and I still haven't covered everything that needs to be covered, right? So how on earth do we say, oh, well, Paul was there for a year. I mean, he covered it all. I was like, that, that's barely enough time to make enough mistakes to know what you're doing wrong. 
Um, and so he's, he's writing to uh, this Corinthian church and trying to correct some of the things that they misunderstood. Now, a lot of the things that they misunderstood had to do with their culture. We were talking about the head coverings and how um, they, looked at, they looked at the pagan temples and the, the leaders would cover their heads. And, um, and, and so they said they should do that. And Paul says, no, no, that's, that's wrong. That's the wrong motivation. That's the wrong idea. And then we look at Lord's table and they were throwing big parties because shouldn't we celebrate Jesus? Shouldn't this be a a big hoopla? I mean, shouldn't we, we make a party out of this? But in the process, they were setting up like boundaries and saying, well, you're not good enough to come into our part of the Lord's table. You have to stay in the lesser part of the Lord's table. Um, And they're kind of differentiating and dividing the church. So when we get to chapter 12... Now, Paul is going to start talking about um, what we call spiritual gifts. Uh, now, now, in, in, in the, the, the Greek text, we don't actually have the phrase spiritual gifts. What we have is just the spiritual things, the, the aspects of the spirit. But um, this has become a, a, a big conversation, uh, in, especially in the modern church, is the issue of spiritual gifts. And I often have people come to me and they say, well, my spiritual gift is fill in the blank. Uh, when I went to work for a church, um, the church I eventually became assistant pastor of, they handed me a test, like an SAT, like with fill in the bubble kind of thing. How many of you love those tests? You're like, you know what I really, really want to do? I, I can't wait. Like you take your SATs for, for uh, first you take your, your uh, the, what's the practice one called? You take the PSATs. Well, that, well I should have thought of that. Uh, so you take the PSATs and you're like, okay, I'm done with it. Well, first you take the standardized test, you know, the no child left behind test that you have to take in elementary school. And you're like, okay, well, that was dumb. I don't want to do that ever again. Then you get to take the PSATs, which is a test to see how well you do taking the test. That seems a little weird. Then you actually take the SATs and there's all this pressure. You've got to score a high score. You've got to do this whole thing. And, and my dad, I mean, all of you that haven't taken your SATs yet, you shouldn't hear this statement. But my dad says to me, he goes, he goes, here's how you take the SATs. Write your name. You get 300 points for that. I was like, okay. He goes, answer all the ones you know. Okay, easy enough. The ones you absolutely don't know, don't answer. Okay. He says, um, and the ones you think you know, you're probably going to get wrong, so don't answer those. I was like, this can't possibly be the right way to take this test. So people often talk about, I don't even know, what the, I think the perfect score of an SAT is a 1500, right? Like, is that the perfect score? I don't know. I have no idea. 1600, see? I got an 1150. Um, you, go, you go, wait, what? Didn't you get into a good school? No, I didn't. Um, but, uh, you know, it's like, it's like you take that test, right? So you think you're done. You're done taking the standard tests, and then you finish undergrad, and you want to go into grad school, you want to go to a master's degree, or you want to become a nurse, and there's another test. Graduates get to take the GRE. What is the GRE? It's the SAT with different letters. All right, and you get all these things. You have to take these tests. Well, I, I get to this church, and he hands me this test, and he says, this is to assess your spiritual gifts. I was like, which ones do you want me to have? 
He said, what do you mean? I said, I said, well, I mean, I, I'm no, I'm, you know, I'm no super genius, but when a question is like, um, how do you feel toward preaching the gospel to the world? Highly motivated, somewhat motivated, not motivated, unmotivated, couldn't care less. I'm like, well, I'm guessing this is weighted toward highly motivated. Right? So I took the SAT test. You want to, you want to know, do you want to know what I scored the worst on? Pastoral care. <laughs> the highest score I, I got was on prophecy. They're like, okay, sure. Uh, anyway, and, and not amazingly, I did not score well on it. Actually, I scored really well on administration, but I lied. Um, so didn't score well on moral compass either. Uh, but uh, anyway, so we, they have these standardized tests. This is not what we're talking about. We're not talking about taking a, a, a test where we say, okay, well, you have this gift and you have this gift. and you have, Because what happens in that mentality is people start thinking, well, this is all I can do. I'm really good at, at this one particular thing. And so then we associate an activity with that one thing and we go, okay, well, that's what you do. So, so for example, I tested really high on prophecy. What is prophecy? And I tested really poorly on teaching. All right. Um, and so now if I were a person that would allow that test to dictate my life, I would go and get myself a camel hair garment, start eating locusts and, locusts and honey, and just start, you know, condemning the world system. That, that's what I should be doing as a prophet. But what, what really it meant was, what all that waiting meant was that, um, and if you go and read all the, the minutiae, was that, that I, I'm really good at seeing what things really mean. And the in-depth, like the depth underneath things. And so we take that and we use that. My wife, if she took a pastoral, the spiritual gifts test, um, anyone want to guess what my wife would test really highly on? Music is not one, by the way. Care. My wife, she cares about people. She loves people. So you sit there and you go, well, neither one of those things should be music things. And I would actually say both of those things are music things. Uh, we joke around that when I'm singing a song, if Nicole and I sing the same song, when I'm singing it, I'm trying to teach you something. When she sings it, she's trying to hug you. <laughs> but those are, both, those are both valid uses. So don't get hung up on the phrase spiritual gift. And secondly, don't get hung up on the idea that you have a spiritual gift. All right? So if you're walking around going, well, this is my spiritual gift, you're already in the wrong vector. You're already thinking about it the wrong way. So I want to get into what Paul has to say about this. In chapter 12 and verse 1, Paul says this. He says, Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be ignorant is really what he's, what he's saying. Um, that's actually the Greek word that underlies it, not knowing. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. Literally, when you were the ethnos, when you were uh, outside of the kingdom of God, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. He says, no matter where you went, you, you wound up following false ideas. Therefore, I want you to understand, in other words, I want you to know, 
So I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to not know, but I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, before I get into the rest of the chapter, I want you to note that there is a Trinitarian formula here. That, that if we read this text, we can say, as we read, we say, no one speaking in the Spirit of God. So no one speaking for God. And remember that Spirit is also breath and also wind. So anyone speaking uh, for God is ever going to say that Jesus is accursed. So in other words, you can't claim to follow God and condemn Jesus. The two are incompatible. He says, and no one can say Jesus is a Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So here we have God the Father. No one claiming to speak for God the Father can speak against Jesus because the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is always in alignment. The three of them, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are always one in will and decree. They are never arguing. They are never in opposition. Now this is really difficult for us to get our heads around. The three of them are holy and independent persons, yet they have one essence. You say, how does that work? I don't know. But that's the way it's revealed in the scriptures, and they never disagree. They are always together. Which means that if God, the Father, decrees something, the Holy Spirit is never going to contradict that thing. Um, if Jesus has lived out something and we are to draw from him and learn from him, that thing that is in Jesus is not going to contradict God the Father or the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's not going to contradict Jesus. So as the church, we can look at the type, the, the model of God, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We can look at them as our model for unity. They are different. They are unique, and yet they are all united in will and action. Now, each one does different things. Each one has a different aspect of stuff. One of the most confusing things about the Trinity is that at times the Bible credits certain acts, creation, salvation, the resurrection of Jesus, to all three members. So how could they all three do the one thing to the other one that's... And it's a mystery. The Apostle Paul goes, look, it's a mystery. And he says, what's a mystery? A thing I don't understand. Well, how can I understand it? Beats me. That's the way that it is. But here we have a model of, and so keep that in mind, he's saying to this church, God in his three persons is always working together, never at odds. Now, in verse 4, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activity, but it is the same God who empowers them in uh, empowers them all and everyone. Did you catch the Trinitarian formula there? Go back and follow it. Same Spirit, same Lord, that's Jesus, and the same God. So again, he's relying on this unity of God to teach a lesson about the church. Now, to each, in verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. 
For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now, again, let me step back and say this. This is not a list of gifts that we must have. It is an illustration of the diversity of the way the Holy Spirit works through the members of the church to do the will of God. So he is not saying every church will have somebody who has wisdom. I've been in a few churches where that one was lacking. Uh, the utterance of knowledge. He's not saying in every church, in every church there's just a few people that have faith, or in every church there must be somebody who heals, or in every church there must be a miracle worker or prophet, or a person with distinct, you know, uh, with the discernment or speaking in tongues. He's not saying that. He's looking at the church and looking at the diversity of the gifts that the Holy Spirit was using and picking a few that would seem to be at odds. For example, the first one they list is somebody with wisdom. Right? And then the utterance of knowledge. And in this church we will discover that there were some folks in this church who were claiming that their gift of tongues, their ability to speak in a, a special language, trumped the wisdom and knowledge and teaching of the scriptures. So Paul is saying, look, if you look at the church and people are saying this gift and that gift and that gift and this gift, if it's not conforming to the same spirit, the same Lord, the same God, warning flag should be going off. Because, in verse 15, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit. He goes, they should not be in conflict. Now, I could update this to modern language and put it this way. Some are pastors. Some are elders. Some are old ladies. Some are youth pastors. Some are kids. Some are professionals. Some are engineers. Some are artists, but if there's a conflict in the church, red flags should be going up. See, we have a diversity of things that God does in us and through us, but that diversity always works together in the church. Shush. I said Holy Spirit, not Holy Siri. All those things, I said be quiet and I meant it, um, all those things should work together. And when they don't, when they don't, it is not God who is causing the discord. All right, so verse 12, for just as a body is one, and has many members, and all the members of the body through many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, all were made to drink of one spirit. 
For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong. Now, first of all, if you get ears talking, there's issues, but um, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Imagine a body composed entirely of hands. That sounds weird. Imagine a body composed entirely of lungs or gastrointestinal systems. That's not how a body works. A body is an incredibly complicated interconnection of systems that while we, when you go through biology school, biology class, you learn about all the body system, the system of smell, the system of touch, you know, all these, the endocrine system and all this stuff. And they're taught to you, how many of you, now for those of you that are under the age of 30, this may not, you may not remember this. How many of you remember the encyclopedias, the medical things where there were all the transparent layers of the body systems and you, you could, you could like, Swap it back and forth, like, oh, look, muscles, oh, look, veins, skeleton, you know, like going, you know, you're going back and forth and you would mix it up. And if you were in my, my grandparents' house, they would fold, we would fold the plastic pages down, my grandparents hated this, um, so that we got like the vascular system imposed over the skeletal system without the muscular system, the kind of, kind of weird nonsense that kids do. Um, and we would do this whole thing. Well, the reality is all those things are actually interconnected. They're not, they're not like, it's not like there's you know, there's just the, the veins and, and, you know, that's just one system and it's just one layer. The reality is all those pieces are really, really tightly joined together. And sometimes something happening in one seemingly unrelated system can cause all kinds of crazy things happening in the other one. You have never enjoyed that until your spouse no longer has an organ that is required for regulating your body. My wife does not have a thyroid because she had thyroid cancer. That means sometimes her body just goes berserk for no apparent reason. And you're sitting there going, what is this tied to? Because the, the endocrine system, the hormones and, and all that stuff that gets generated, they affect everything else. The whole body is in, engaged. Now, if you want more science on this, I recommend talking to Doc. That's the limit of my knowledge. All right, But I do know that that's how all of that works. So the body, even though the body, we can look at and we say, well, that's the arm or that's the toe or that's the this or that's the that. Any of you have had a broken toe and then tried to run? Know that even the smallest part of your body matters. How many of you have ever had something happen to one of your thumbs that you couldn't use your thumb? All right. And you're, you're like, suddenly everything is really interesting, Right. You know, you, you, are, you, are, you are stuck, right? Um, so there's, there's all these different parts of the body, but they all work together. And when one part of the body says, pay attention to me, pay attention to me, pay attention to me, what do we call that? That's an illness. That's a sickness. The body's supposed to be operating together seamlessly. When your GI tract says, you know what? 
I've decided that I don't like wheat anymore. Isn't that fun? Suddenly you have to, you discover there's wheat in everything. Uh, My wife is lactose intolerant. Why is there milk in cold cuts? What possible advantage do we have in putting milk in ham? Why is that there? All right, but you you discover when something is out of whack, you you realize it affects the whole body. How many of you deal with migraines? You just get on with your day, right? Easy peasy, no problem, right? It's like, oh, it's just my head. The rest of my body is still fully functional. No, it isn't. Your head has a little bit of power and control. I mean, you've ever had a heart attack. You discover when one part of your body does not want to operate, there's an issue. And yet in the church, which is the body of Christ, how often do we just, we, we allow the malfunction? Oh, it's just how we are. It's just how we operate. That's Paul's point. Um, he goes on and on about the body. Uh, verse 27, now you are the body of Christ, individually members of it. God has appointed in the church. And again, this is not an exhaustive list, but it does give us a structure uh, that apostles are first. We don't have apostles anymore. We're not, we're not appointing apostles, but the apostles were the authority. Then the prophets and the teachers. Elsewhere, he actually he puts um, pastor, teacher together as one term. Um, the miracles, then gifts of healing and helping and administering in various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret, but honestly, and then he says, earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you still more excellent way. Now, I want to I just provide to you a, a quick visualization of what is going on in this Corinthian church. So I, I gave Dan a graphic to throw up there. When the church is all about the individual and there, we all are bringing in our own agendas and our own gifts, there's a lot of unperceivable, uh, maybe, or um, unconscious distinctions that start to get drawn. Um, so sometimes, you know, and, and all of these people, by the way, generally speaking, they're pretty good. Um, you know, so, but... Things can get out of balance when all we think about is our individual gifts. When, um, and look, you guys, you guys are phenomenal, all right, in your, in your willingness to sit through me talking for 45 minutes. I still don't understand why. Um, but when the church becomes only about the pastor, the brain, the, the instructor, and, and he becomes the all there is to the church, all right, because his individual power is so good. That's not great. That's not a good situation. Leads to personality cults. When when your band is so rocking and so good, your music is so good that everybody just comes for a free concert, things might start getting out of balance, all right? Um, when, when, uh, when the angry guy at the top right, now some of you, if you come from a Pentecostal background, you're going, that's the guy filled with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> no, that's the angry guy. That's the angry guy. All right. It's the Holy Spirit. Um, 
When the angry voice dominates the decisions of the church, well, we don't do things because we don't want to upset so-and-so. Well, if we bring this up, so-and-so is going to get upset. Now, how many of you have never gotten upset over a decision made in a church? Not necessarily better, but don't raise your hands. We all get upset at decisions. That's what happens. But we have to be careful when the church is dominated by let's not upset so-and-so, they'll make a scene. Um, uh, the, uh, the church that's so worried about the people who are leaving. I didn't intentionally pick two women. That wasn't on purpose. I was just throwing stick figures in and I happened to grab. But we're so worried about the people leaving. I, I worked with a pastor who actually um, intercepted a family who was thinking about leaving the church as they were headed on to vacation, stopped them on the road, made them get in the parking lot of the grocery store there so he could convince them to stay in his church. We're so obsessed about keeping people from leaving. Or we're, we're so obsessed, the little purple guys up on the top, we're so obsessed about love is love. We, we gotta love. Let's not make any decisions that people won't like because we love each other. Or the church is all about the kids. That's what's going on up there in the top left there. It's a bunch of running ch- children running in the back of the sanctuary. You laugh. I know a church where the pastor's kids had no self-control and would just run around the church building while they were having service. And when people said, well, could you ask your kids to sit down? He said, well, kids will be kids. Hmm. I wonder why those kids aren't in church anymore. Or these little blue guys who are just in every possible direction. Uh, This one down by the bottom. This is my family, the homeschooled pastor's family. We're all just in our little enclave there. There's actually one too many of us. Um, But, you know, you get that self-contained. It's all about me and my family unit, my group. I want the whole thing to conform to me. Um, uh, Let me tell you a little story, right? So uh, the church I served in as assistant pastor, they loved clam bakes. Now, how many of y'all like clam bakes? We're never going to have one. Clam bakes and lobster and all that stuff. I literally will vomit in the presence of seafood being cooked. I despise the smell of seafood. Now, I love y'all, but if we go out to eat and you order stinky seafood, I will move to the other side of the table where me and my former cow will enjoy our lunch. I do not like seafood. And the whole church building would fill with the smell of clams and lobsters and all this stuff. And I would go outside with the other carnivores who believed that if God wanted us to eat fish, he would have given us gills. And we would sit next to the grill, allowing the smell of the beef to blow into our nostrils and cleanse ourselves, and we would eat. Well, I was the assistant pastor of the church. So people are like, why don't you just say, you know, you don't want to do that? The church was not about me. They liked seafood. They liked the pastor ate quahogs. Do you know what a quahog? I, he, I watched it on YouTube how they... Har- <laughs> Gross. And they're like sitting there with clam, oysters and stuff, like raw oysters. <laughs> Gross. 
so disgusting. Ugh. But it's not about me. The church fellowshiped over that. So out of respect for the church. But sometimes we get so focused on ourselves and what we want and how we want it to be comfortable and we want it to be our way that we make the church about me instead of about us. Now here's the deal. If you grew up in church, all that makes perfect sense to you. That's the way life is. I grew up in a church where there were shouting matches in business meetings every single quarter of the year. My dad, I love the guy, phenomenal thinker, great preacher, terrible, terrible administrator. Just awful. I mean, I, I love him, but his method, I'm not kidding. He keep, kept everything when I was a kid on a desk calendar, and missionaries would show up at our church scheduled to speak, and he would have never told anybody it was happening because he didn't remember he, he just was, he's, my dad, intellect of like 150, his IQ is out the door, social cues are non-existent. This is the way he was. So every business meeting, people would get up and start yelling about stuff. Well, I think we should have this, or we should have that, or we should buy this brand of toilet paper. And at one point, my father and my grandfather, my grandfather was in the church, practically came to blows. My grandfather was coming across my dad's desk after a business meeting to punch him in the face over a decision that had been made. That's what I grew up in. I grew up in a situation that I just assumed the church was about arguments and disagreement. Some of us grew up in families where we just assumed that's how parenting worked. We just assumed that it must be the chaos. That's the chaos. That, that's right. It's not. But those coming from the outside, those little people with the question marks over their head, what are they seeing? Because you know what? We can put on the mask and pretend on a Sunday morning like we all get along. We're the best buddies in the whole wide world. But let me tell you something. The people who are coming from the outside, they can see it. They can see it. We have all experienced this. You were in a knockdown, drag out fight with your significant other right before guests are coming to your house. You are hanging the children from the ceiling trying to convince them to do something by their ankles. Would you please just behave? Stop doing that. Don't ask. I can say that. Ding, ding. Hi. If you're like me, you open that, you're the visitor, and they open the door and you go, oh, this is going to be awful. The, you know, it's just until they've solved this problem, this is going to be an awkward setup. Well, people coming from the outside can see that in the church. So what is the higher or more excellent way. Paul says this, if I, in chapter 13, verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, if I have every gift in the world, but I do not have love, I am just a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing, if I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned and have not love, I gain nothing. 
Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Prophecies, they will pass away. Tongues, they will cease. Knowledge, it will pass away. We know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, no offense to literally every single wedding ceremony that has ever been performed in the history of the world. When they read this passage, this is not about romantic love. This is not about the feeling of love. This passage is about the very nature of God. Three omniscient, omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-creating beings. Three persons, one essence, one will. What holds God together? Pure love. Only love could allow for the existence of a triune God. You say, what? The Father did not love the Son, and the Son did not love the Father, and the Father did not love the Spirit, and the Spirit did not love the Son, and any permutation of that, it wouldn't work. But thankfully, God is perfect. He is perfect in His attributes, and His one attribute that is so important here at this moment is love. Love is not the feeling I have. Love is not the desire to be intimate with someone. No matter how much our culture says love is love, everyone who says that does not understand what love truly is. They have equated it to an act and a feeling, and that is not love. Sorry if that upsets you, but that's Bible. Love, true, true love, is what brings us together today. All right, anyway. I just had to get that out of my head. I was like, what? That's The Princess Bride. Go back and watch it. Top five movie of all time. Um, the nature of God is united by love, and the church is united as we, and this is so important, grow into loving him. Not us. Him, not us. You say, well, this is such a loving church. Look at the way everybody loves everybody else. Now, if you, you've been visiting Bedford Road, I just wanted to let you know, we love each other. Sometimes we can't stand each other. Sometimes we don't understand each other. But the reason that we're here and the reason if you've come in the door to you, wow, this is a church, they really love each other. The reason that our congregation loves each other is not because we are lovable, but because hopefully and prayerfully we've come to understand that our love is devoted to him and he loves others through us. And so we love them because he loves them. 
Everybody's like, well, Jesus loved me first, and that's why I'm a Christian. I'm like, eh, eh, okay, eh. that's kind of reductionist. What really, really happens is love is so overwhelming that when it grabs a hold of us, we just have to let, we have to let go. I, I talk about this, and I haven't said this in a while, but I'm an atheist who can't get past Jesus. I despised growing up everything about the church. Bunch of, not Bedford Road, I just want to throw a disclaimer, bunch of bickering, arguing, opinionated pastors leading bickering, opinionated, ignorant churches. I wanted nothing to do with it. But when I got into the scriptures and I read the gospel and I saw Jesus and I said, if Jesus is even one, one millionth of what he is depicted in in the scriptures, I'm willing to live and die for this person. Because his love is so extraordinary that he was willing to lay down his life. He was willing to die on a cross. He was willing to bear the sins of the world upon himself. And so powerful was his love and his sovereignty and his divinity that when he took on himself the death of all things in the universe, when he chose to, he stood up from the dead. It no longer had power over him. And if he loves me, That is all that matters. It doesn't matter if I'm not likable. He loves me. It doesn't matter if you're not likable. If you're annoying. I speak from experience. He loves you. And when that love gets a hold of you, it is so overwhelming and so extraordinary. How do we all get along It's because just in our own broken, fragmented, shattered way, we want to reflect just a little bit of the love that he poured out on us. The church should be unified because of the very nature of the God we worship. You say, how do I know what my spiritual gifts are? Love people enough like Jesus to be willing to do what needs to be done. And the Spirit will work. He will move. Well, I don't like fill in the blank. Guys, I don't like large assemblies of people. I don't like being around a lot of people. We went to this co- this fair yesterday, this craft fair. I walked into a tent. There were all these artsy people with funny-looking glasses. They're yellow, blue, octagonal, sideways, up and down. They were selling all kinds of stuff. There were hippies. There were potters. There were people making tie-dye something or others. There were people knitting stuffed animals out of old sweaters. There were people making... There was all kinds of stuff going on. And we're walking, and my wife and daughter, they're looking at things, and Heather and Mark Byron with us, and Heather's going from booth to booth, and Nicole's looking at this is cool, and this is... And I'm standing, and I went, I'm done with this. I'll be outside. You ever noticed I don't sit down in potlucks? You know why? I don't like being in groups of people. But when the God, the Jesus, the Savior who loves me said, love them. Okay. Can I be weird when I do it? Go for it.
Yes. Can I make jokes? Yeah, you better. Because you're funny looking. You might as well be funny sounding. I said, can I, if, if I'm going to be a pastor, can I be the kind of pastor that is honest enough about what we're going through that we can see real healing, real relationships, real love, where we can get rid of the facade. I hate the facade. I hate the game. I hate the entertainment. You know what? As I read Jesus, I realized he didn't like it either. As I read Paul, I realized he didn't like it either. The game that was the church, that is the church in so many places, if we would just be able to strip away the veneers and and the games and the manipulations and be able to get to Jesus... Jesus doesn't need our showboating. He doesn't need our fanciness. We just need to know his love. His love should at times make us angry at sin, heartbroken over sin. At times his love should make us weep with those who weep and sing with those who sing. His love should make us miss those who are going to be gone from our fellowship, not because of who they are, but because He loves them. When you really get a hold of that kind of love, you don't have to work at being authentic because it's about Him, not you. When, he's got, when you've got that kind of love... You can sit here where your musical preference runs a different direction than the pipe organ and still sing. When you've got that kind of love, it doesn't matter that the person next to you maybe is a little bit different or a little bit odd. When they're weeping or they're crying or they're in pain, you want to love them not because of who they are but because of who He is. Because the greatest of these is love. How do you fix every single problem in the modern church? You start with who Jesus is. And then you work at making sure everybody sees him. And you'd be amazed how the problems of this world start to fade away when people get to know Jesus. They get to let him transform them and their relationships. In 2009, I'll close with this story. 2009, since Bob led, I'm going to tell this story because it happened in his house that he's about to move out of. The elders of Grace Baptist Church, which was at this building right now, had been um, somewhat confused when a pastor of an existing church about 10 miles north sent his resume in and said, hey, how would you guys like to join churches? One day Bob showed up at my church Greg Jones said, that's the guy from Grace. Bob and Loney were there for communion Sunday and were welcomed in and all this stuff. And so they invited me to come and meet with the elders in the search committee. And I I went to Bob's house and Bob asked me, and I tell this story all the time, so it's familiar to you. I apologize, but there's some new people. Bob said to me, why would a hip, cool, young pastor like you want to lead to pastor a church, and he didn't exactly say this word, that is broken and struggling, filled with strife. 
And I looked at Bob and I looked at the guys, Ray Brown and um, Donald Bush, and I don't remember who else was there. I said, because Jesus doesn't give up on his church. Why doesn't he give up? Because he loves us. He loves us. And hopefully if you've been visiting with us or worshiping with us, the one thing that you've gotten from Bedford Road is not that we think we're awesome, but we think that his love is. And we come together not because of how great we are, but because of how good he is. And we do what we do, and we live how we live, and we fail and succeed all in an endeavor to demonstrate his love to one another and to the world. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Jesus, your love is greater than anything we could do or say. And so in this moment, I just ask that your spirit speak. That we allow him to draw us closer. There's nothing more I can pray. Jesus loves me. This I know. Do you join me? For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Beloved by the one who loves with an infinite power and be a reflection of that love to those around you. My brothers and sisters, go in peace and be the church of Jesus Christ.